Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Fireside Thoughts, where I ask controversial yet important questions and explain why I don't think the answers are so black and white. I also provide my own perspective on these topics based on in-depth research and reasoning and open the floor to any counterpoints people may provide. Of all the controversial questions out there, I would definitely say that the issue of abortion has been one of the most difficult topics for me to wrestle with. Um, Unlike most other issues, I actually came to college with a more conservative view on abortion, despite having grown up in liberal Massachusetts. And I attribute that to the fact that I am a Christian, and I've been raised with the belief that all life is ordained by God and, as such, should be protected at all costs. And because of this, I thought that no one could be Christian and also be pro-choice. But just like so many other things, I quickly discovered in college just how naive that was, since I have quite a few friends who are both Christian and pro-choice. So per the majority vote of listeners, in this episode, I'll be tackling a question that's been on my mind for a very long time. Should we ban abortion? Unfortunately, I possess two traits that some will use to immediately discredit anything I say, and I want to address both of those. First, like I said before, I am Christian, and that's a really important part of who I am. But I do recognize that that doesn't apply to everyone listening to this podcast, and I think it would be extremely prideful of me to say, hey, you need to believe that all life is ordained by God, even though you don't believe in God. So, for the duration of this episode, I will not make a single point on the basis of religion. Second, I am male, and some of you will say that I am unqualified to talk about abortion purely because I am male, since I am incapable of carrying a baby. First of all, telling someone that they're not allowed to express their opinion purely because of their identity directly violates the First Amendment. But I can see an argument for why men shouldn't be allowed to enact abortion legislation, since it really only affects women. Alright, so let's examine that argument. Let's take Joe Biden, who is a white male. So surely, by that logic, he should be completely unqualified to talk about abortion, right? Well, apparently not, because a lot of the liberals, in fact, majority of liberals, support his stances on abortion. Okay, on the other hand, let's take Amy Coney Barrett, someone who is not only well-educated and certainly has experience in court, but also has a husband and seven children of her own, so she's had to go through the birthing process seven separate times. Surely she's qualified to talk about abortion, right? Well, also no. Majority of liberals think she's unqualified to be on the Supreme Court. So what's the difference here? Well, Biden is liberal, and Barrett, she's not. Alright, so maybe men should be allowed to push for legislation on abortion, but we should at least amplify the voices of women. I think that's a wonderful idea. Let's start with the 37% of women who are against abortion, since I hear their side of the story much, much less than I hear from women who are pro-choice. But I don't know any liberals advocating for that. To be clear, I have no issue with empowering women. In fact, I strongly support gender equality as well as those advocating for it. But I do not support those who draw double standards so that only people who agree with them are qualified to express their opinion. I think doing so only divides this country further. I will admit, however, that my perspective is limited to my life experience. Obviously, I will never have to carry a baby, 
And so I can never fully understand the struggles that a woman facing the prospect of abortion has to deal with. So in preparation for this episode, I read upwards of 50 individual accounts of women who did have to experience it, with the goal of attaining a new perspective that my experience alone cannot provide. Alright, with that aside, let's address a few misconceptions on both sides of this issue. I think first we should look at how men and women compare in their views on abortion. According to a study conducted by the Pew Research Center, 62% of women and 56% of men are in support of making abortion legal in most or all cases, while 37% of women and 42% of men oppose it. So two things really stood out to me from this data. First, that majority of men are in favor of legal abortions, and second, that the percentage of women and men who oppose legal abortions are very similar. I can't even begin to count the number of times I've heard liberals say that opposing abortion is misogynistic, which is really great at capturing people's attention and emotions, but it can't be true if the opposition is made up of an equal number of men and women. I think a common misconception is that abortion is a battle between males and females, when in reality that's not true. Okay, moving on to a misconception commonly held by conservatives. I've heard many people in the pro-life movement say that most women will eventually regret getting an abortion and will realize that their decision was not the best one. In other words, they believe that women will often make the decision impulsively. And they'll often use that to say that we should just stop abortions in the first place. But there's actually little to no evidence to back that up. On the contrary, a study published in Social Science and Medicine found that although women experienced a wide range of emotions before and immediately after obtaining an abortion, after five years, 99% of them maintained that getting an abortion was the best decision given the circumstances. And the article also cites multiple previous studies that found that community stigmas around abortion had a negative impact on the woman's psychological health post-abortion. So the idea that a significant number of abortions are performed impulsively without regard to long-term repercussions or alternatives, that is a myth. So is the idea that women use abortions as a form of birth control. From this data, as well as from reading personal accounts, I can reasonably say that in the overwhelming majority of cases, women only use abortion as a last resort. Alright, misconceptions aside, let's jump into the topic itself. People will often take two different approaches to this issue, a moral stance and a pragmatic stance. I won't be spending a lot of time on forming a moral stance because morality is very much so subjective, so I'll instead focus more on the practicality of making abortion illegal and how I think society can best approach this issue. Of course, of course, we can't discuss this topic without first asking where life begins, right? Wrong, because there's currently no objective way of determining where life truly begins, at least that everyone can agree on. Some think that life begins at conception, but that's often based in religion, and others can't see how a single cell constitutes an entirely separate living being. Some people say life begins when there's a fetal heartbeat, but the basis for what is considered a heartbeat is fuzzy at best. Others say that life begins at the age of viability, which is when the baby can survive outside of the mother's body, but that varies depending on what part of the country or world you live in, and that argument also falls apart when you consider that an infant relies upon its mother just as much as a 9-month-old fetus. 
So because there is no answer, or at least an objective answer, I will not attempt to answer the question. So I think the next question would be whether we should work to reduce abortions in the United States. And a good measure of this would be to compare the United States to abortion rates around the world. According to data compiled by the United Nations on 61 different countries, the United States abortion rate is 30% higher than the average abortion rate worldwide. So that tells me that there is something we could be doing to reduce the abortion rate. And perhaps I'm wrong, but I think everyone can agree that if we can reduce abortions while minimizing the repercussions on the woman and on society as a whole, we should. So how can we do this? I think it's important to first look at various types of abortion restrictions and see what kind of effect they have on abortion rates and public health. So let's start by talking about gestational limits, which are laws that restrict abortions past a certain point. But without knowing where life begins, can we even make a case for these? Well, while I believe that banning all abortions no matter what is too extreme in action, for reasons I'll explain later, I also believe that allowing abortions to occur any time up to birth is also too extreme. So what's the cutoff? According to research published in the journal Obstetrics and Gynecology, women who obtain abortions after their first trimester are at a much higher risk of death. If we use the fatality rate among women who received abortions before 8 weeks of gestation as the baseline, by the beginning of the second trimester, women were 14.7 times more likely to die from having an abortion. And just three weeks later, that chance increased to 29.5 times. Eight weeks into the second trimester, the chance of death became 76.6 times higher. So from a strictly safety point of view, it's by far much safer for women to get abortions in their first trimester than it is for them to get abortions in their second or third trimester. One of the most common arguments against gestational limits is that women of low socioeconomic status are more likely to experience delays in obtaining an abortion due to factors such as financial hardship, lack of access to abortion clinics, and difficulty in obtaining transportation. The facts show mixed support for that claim. It is true that women from lower income backgrounds are much more likely to experience delays. Twice as likely, actually, according to a research article published in the journal Contraception. The article also found that of second trimester abortion patients who were asked why they couldn't get an abortion earlier, 36% of them said that they needed time to raise enough money. 16% of them said that they didn't know where to get an abortion, and only 9% said that they couldn't find a place to get an abortion near them, so they had to arrange for transportation. Now, these are all reasons that are outside of one's own control, and as such, it's up to the system to change, not the individual. There are two ways that this can happen. We can either allow for second trimester abortions, or we can make resources much more accessible so that abortions can happen earlier, and I vote the former. According to a study published by the Jacobs Institute of Women's Health, abortions in the first trimester cost an average of $397, while abortions in the second trimester cost more than double that, at an average of $854. So not only is it safer to have first trimester abortions, it's also much less costly, which is important when considering the high number of abortion patients who are low income. I think that while gestational limits should eventually be imposed, doing so right now would be impractical. There are so many underlying reasons to why a woman would need an abortion after the first trimester, many of which are outside of her control. And I think it's unreasonable to simply restrict her from safely and legally obtaining a late-term abortion without providing her a means of getting one earlier.
Okay, moving on. What about parental involvement laws, which require minors to obtain permission from a parent or guardian in order to get an abortion? Well, these laws actually show positive effects on public health in addition to abortion rates. A 2003 study in the Journal of Health Economics found that parental involvement laws were associated with a 4-9% reduction in pregnancy rates among 15-17 to 17 year olds. A 2008 study in the Journal of Law, Economics, and Organization found that these laws also reduced the gonorrhea rate anywhere from 12-20% to 20% among females under 20. And finally, a 2012 study published in the journal Economic Inquiry found that parental involvement laws were associated with an 11 to 21% reduction in suicide rates in 15 to 17 year old females. So when it comes to minors, they're much more likely to be careful if they can't just go get an abortion without their parents knowing. And the studies confirm this by attributing the statistics to an increased use in contraceptives. So I see overwhelming evidence that parental involvement laws are an effective and beneficial form of abortion restriction. I think that this law can be paired with the solutions I'll present later to reduce unwanted pregnancies. Okay, moving on to the last restriction I'm going to talk about in this episode. Some abortion restrictions propose reducing access to funding for abortion patients in order to discourage abortions. In a study published in Population Research and Policy Review, researchers explored the effect of North Carolina's abortion law in 1989, which prohibited Medicaid from being used to cover abortions, but it did provide a state fund. But there was a catch. This state fund would just occasionally run out of money entirely. When this fund did run out, abortion rates declined drastically, showing that restricting access to funding does decrease abortion rates. However, months after the fund ran out, birth rates increased significantly, especially among low-income women. Three in four women who get abortions are considered low-income, and as I said before, a major reason why women get abortions is because they can't afford to raise the child on their own. I personally think that public funding restrictions do a great job of reducing abortions, but fail to address the underlying problems that lead to abortions in the first place, leading to more problems. And this, I believe, is the greatest issue with the abortion debate in America. Conservatives see abortion as murder and believe that it should be banned immediately, without stopping to really consider the severe consequences of doing so. Many of them turn abortion into a matter of religion, attempting to force their ideals on those who have completely different belief systems. On the other hand, liberals will often say that we need to address the underlying causes of abortion, but will neither push for legislation nor promote activism to do so. Instead, trying to turn abortion into a matter of women's rights, claiming that white males are oppressing women by trying to restrict abortion. They then promote laws that make abortion more accessible without really trying to fix the root causes. I believe that the only question we should be focusing on is this. What problems lead to women getting abortions, and how can we solve them? In my mind, there are three steps. First, we need to reduce unwanted pregnancies. Then, we need to provide better options for women who do get unwanted pregnancies. And third, we can restrict abortions. So starting from the first step, how do we reduce unwanted pregnancies? Although some will often disregard the importance of it, I think that everything begins with education. Education shapes both the way we think and the way we view the world around us. So let's take a look at how schools around the country educate their students when it comes to sex. An article published by the Kaiser Family Foundation found that 24 states mandate sex education for youth. 
37 states require that any sex education must include abstinence, and 26 of those require that abstinence be stressed. On the other hand, only 18 states require that information on contraception be provided in sex education courses. Here's something that, as a teenager myself, I've found to be true. When you tell a teenager not to do something, they will often end up doing it anyway. We're taught not to get blackout drunk, yet try coming to a university on a Friday night. We're taught not to smoke tobacco or marijuana, but try coming to a university on a Friday night. If we're taught not to have sexual intercourse, make your best guess as to what will happen. Now don't get me wrong, abstinence has its benefits. If you don't have sex, you won't get pregnant, I think. I'm pretty sure that's how that works. In addition, a study published in the Journal of Family Psychology found that people who waited until marriage rated their relationship stability 22% higher and rated their satisfaction with their relationship 20% higher. So there's nothing wrong with teaching abstinence in school, but abstinence-only education is a different story because I believe it's unrealistic. A report by the CDC found that only 10% of men and women who are currently or have ever been married maintained abstinence until marriage. In addition, an article published in the Journal of Adolescent Health concluded that abstinence-only education did not reduce the likelihood of engaging in intercourse, and adolescents who received comprehensive sex education had a lower risk of pregnancy than adolescents who received abstinence-only or no sex education. So not only is it impractical to teach students that they should just refrain from sex until they're married, it's also ineffective. To reduce unwanted pregnancies, I think the best way to do so is to promote contraceptives and other forms of birth control. Although this will not eliminate unwanted pregnancies entirely, it will drastically reduce them. This plan is also only effective if it's implemented everywhere, not just in the 24 states that mandate sex education. Well, Jordan, what about the unwanted pregnancies that happen anyway? What about cases of rape and incest? Well, first of all, it's important to note that rape and incest account for an extremely low number of abortions, less than 1.5% to be exact, according to an article by the Guttmacher Institute. That, that's someone's last name, I promise this is a reliable source. But anyway, they still do happen, and these, along with other unwanted pregnancies, are where the second phase of the plan comes in. From the personal stories I've read, it seems that in almost every scenario where the woman got an abortion, she felt as if it were her only option left. So we need to provide a better alternative, one that doesn't force the woman to raise a child that she cannot logically support, while also not terminating the life or future, however you want to view it, of the fetus or baby, however you want to view it. I think the solution to abortion is adoption. The problem is, our country's adoption system is entirely unprepared to handle the estimated 862,300 abortions that happen every year in the United States. According to PBS, only 135,000 children are adopted by parents in the U.S. every year. 59% are from the foster care system, 26% are from other countries, and only 15% are from voluntarily relinquished babies, which is the category we're focusing on. That means that if we were to ban all abortions right now and use adoption as the alternative, our country would only be able to handle about 2.3% of the babies. As far back as I can remember, I cannot recall seeing a single advertisement about adopting a child from the United States. Looking at social media and seeing what people are advocating for, nobody is pushing for adoption. You think the lack of information about abortion clinics is a problem? Consider the much, much lower amount of information there is about adoption services. 
Worried about women who can't afford abortions? Adoption is free. So to liberals and conservatives alike, I ask you this. Can we please stop fighting about abortion? It's, it's really not going anywhere. Instead, we can both fight for better education, we can both fight for adoption, and when the choice is no longer just between having an abortion and raising a child that can't be supported, then we can eliminate abortion. So those are my thoughts about abortion. As is the case with most of these topics, it's a very complicated issue with lots of layers that I didn't have enough time to touch upon in a 20 minute episode. For example, I didn't have time to talk about Planned Parenthood, or whether our tax money should be used to fund abortions. Both of those are very important topics and I think they're worth looking into. If you had any problems with anything I said, or simply have a good counterpoint that I didn't address, please send me a DM or email me at firesidethoughtspodcast at gmail.com, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. You can also request my source document that way as well. As per usual, I'll compile the best responses in a follow-up episode so that you can hear opinions beyond my own. Make sure to share this podcast if you enjoyed it. It really helps me out a ton. It's available on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, and multiple other platforms, the links to which can be found on my Instagram page, which is just Jordan's Podcast. And with that, thank you all for listening, and I'll see you all in the next one. Goodbye!